A, a sight unseen yes to me. It's like if Ryan rings up and says, hey, I was thinking, and be like, I- I'm in. You're listening to Skip Intro with me, Krista Smith. When Hollywood was on the hunt for a young actor to star opposite Richard Gere in the 1996 courtroom thriller Primal Fear, Edward Norton, who didn't even have an agent at the time, breezed into the audition room and won the part over thousands of other hopefuls. Before the film was even released, his test screening caused a sensation in the industry, and offers began pouring in for other roles. Primal Fear earned Edward his first Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor. However, the truth, in fact, is that Edward began honing his craft years before he caught Hollywood's eye. At just five years old, Edward attended his first play, a musical version of Cinderella, which sparked his interest in acting. After taking acting classes throughout his childhood, Edward began seriously considering a career while attending Yale University, where he performed in various plays while also studying Japanese and history. A few years after graduating, Edward relocated to New York City and began studying acting with the famous Terry Schreiber. In fact, the first few plays he did in New York were at the Schreiber Studio. Eventually, he managed to find work on stage as a member of the Signature Players, who produced the works of playwright and director Edward Albee. Edward's unique stage background translated beautifully into the film career we're all familiar with. In addition to Primal Fear, he led unforgettable turns in films like American History X, for which he received a second Oscar nomination, Fight Club, Moonrise Kingdom, Grand Budapest Hotel, The Painted Veil, and Birdman, to name a few. In 2019, he wrote, directed, and starred in Motherless Brooklyn. Now, Edward stars as Miles Braun in Ryan Johnson's fabulous whodunit, Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. I sat down with Edward at the Toronto Film Festival back in September, where Glass Onion was having its world premiere. Edward Norton is in the house. I am so excited to see you here, and thank you for doing Skip Intro. I'm very Great excited. to see you again. Great to have you on. You know, I was reading in your bio, and I think we've talked about this maybe way back in the day in the 90s, but what I didn't realize is I, I saw you at um, Terry Schreiber in Brian Frill's Lovers. Really? Okay, yes. Wow. Yes. I don't think I ever do that okay. all the time we've talked. Yeah, right? And I, what I didn't know, which I read, so I need you to, to, to keep me on honest on this. After college, you came to New York. You're starting to be an actor. You wanted to do it. You were you were at the Schreiber Studios. You were cast in this play. But before that, you had written to Edward Albee to be in one of his unproduced plays. Mm-hmm. And it kind of, which I just love the chutzpah and just writing the letter. <laughs> and first of all, let's just start and not an email. It was a letter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you had to find the address. Yeah, you had to mail it. Two or whatever that yeah. was. Yeah. Uh, and then he actually ended up coming to see you in... In the in lovers, yeah, yeah, no, um, I haven't thought about this in a while. It's fun to go, the, I loved to, you know, he was, he was one of the great American writers in any form. Yeah. He was, he was, um, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf and and Zoo Story and, um, and so many great plays. And he, I. I read in a collection of one acts. I don't remember why. Maybe friends and I were thinking about if we rented a theater downtown and put up our own play, what could we do that would be mm-hmm. exciting? And I remember I remember 
finding out that he'd written this one-act play that had never been produced, and that sort of shocked me that something that Edward Albee wrote hadn't been produced. I couldn't mm-hmm. really process why that would be. So I I just sort of thought, well, maybe uh, maybe he'd let us do it, right? And um, and so I I actually I looked him up in the yellow pages, if you can believe that. I looked him up, yeah. not in the yellow pages, but in the phone, phone book. book. Yeah. And, and I have no idea why I think, but it said Edward Albee, 14 Harrison Street, which is in Tribeca. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, well, how do I know if it's him? And I knew someone who knew someone who was old enough. And I just said, do you know by any chance if, if Edward Albee lives in Tribeca? And someone said, yes, he does in, in that old coffee, in the old coffee mm-hmm. warehouse. And I was like, okay, that's him. He's in the phone book. So I, so I wrote him a letter about this play and, uh, you know, I loved it. This is what I thought about it. My friends and I would like to produce it. Would you ever give us the permission, et cetera, et cetera. And then I wrote, you know, P.S. I'm performing in Brian Friel's Lovers on East 4th Street, you know, (laughs) and I don't remember what vaporous connection (laughs) I drew on to say, you know, so-and-so who's involved in the thing, but you know, if you can come and be so thrilled, right? Just whatever. And um, and I got a letter back from him about 10 days later. I got this letter back. Very lovely, like really responsive to the things I'd written about the play. And he said, uh, based on what you've written here, I would feel completely comfortable with having you produce it. But I've just agreed to do a full season of my work with the new Signature Theater Company. Mm. Um and that's going to be a part of an evening of one acts. Maybe you should audition, uh, you know. And and then he said, um, if I can come and see your play, I certainly will try to make time. Blah blah blah. And I thought, well, I'll be damned. I got a letter back from Edward Albee and things and everything. And then one night, we were doing our our play, and I came out, and and Terry Schreiber, one of my mentors, came out and said, he said, you know, uh, I want to introduce you to Edward Albee, and he was there. He had come and. Um, and uh, he really, really liked the play and the performance or whatever. So he invited me to audition for that. And that's how I, Signature became my company. That mm-hmm. was, that was mm-hmm. my first. It, his play, uh, Fragments, was my first paycheck as an actor. Mm-hmm. God, that's what I love yeah. about this business is you just never know. You and never like, know, no. And the youth of like you think, oh, I'll never want to ask. And I always tell people that ask me, like, what's the harm in asking? They can always say no. But the fact no, that, absolutely. right? Like if you got a letter like that, right? And I always think like... I have gotten letters yeah. like that, by the way. You should never assume that people, because they've done work you like, have have insulated themselves from the, the give and take of, of dialogue with other people who do this thing. You have to reach out. There are lots of people who um, will be responsive, you know? And mm-hmm. I think um, it's a weirder world now with the way we communicate electronically and social media and there's mm. there, there's so many different vectors through which accessibility has, has changed, you know. But I always, you know, there's never any harm in, in expressing yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I remember that. It was a little patch of green lawn and you had to run around on that for, for lovers. It was like such an interesting yeah, production. Yeah. And it was actually really spectacular uh, show. Yeah, Brian Friel... Brian Friel was a great, you know, people know him better from um, Dancing at Lunasa mm-hmm. was one of his most mm-hmm. famous ones and Translations. Yeah. 
is a brilliant, brilliant play. That's my favorite of his. Um, and so many great actors came through the the Irish theater that he was involved in. Stephen Ray mm-hmm. and I think Liam Neeson yep. and um, Sinead Cusack. And you know, there was just there. It was just there was this for me doing it was. It felt like being connected to this this amazing tradition mm-hmm. in the Irish theater. How did you handle that um, p- early part of your career when you when you basically were doing the off Broadway, like you said, became part of signatures. Then you get cast in Primal Fear off of an audition of thousands, right, and became this discovery. Then nominated for now, an, and I remember this covering from Vanity Fair because I remember photographing you in the Hollywood issue, and it was like, who's gonna sign him? It was like this feeding frenzy <laughs> around town, and um, at that time yeah, it was Brian Swartzstrom. I remember it all yeah. very, very vividly because I just, you know, we kind of came up in New York at that time, and when when um, that moment happened for you. I mean, when you look back Deb on Aquila, that. Deb Aquila, remember? Yes, Deb Aquila course. was a great casting director yep. at Paramount. But I knew Deb because Deb, when you were in New York in the 90s, Deb was it. She was mm-hmm. the indie film casting director who, she cast Sex, Lies, and Videotape yeah. and Last Exit to Brooklyn. And, you know, it was like that was who you wanted to mm-hmm. get your stuff in front of and get on their radar. She And, um, and then... I was just, I was lucky she and her partner had tuned into me in New York a little bit. And and then when she went out and started doing things at Paramount, it, that, that's how I was able to, to Dude, get Dude, it's incredible. Yeah. I mean, but, it's incredible. Um, but, you, you know, you and 2,000 other people. But it, it's a, it was such a moment. It's funny. Like, if you, when you look back at things, they feel compressed. But when you're doing things, the, the day-to-day, the day-to-day process... You know, it's not it's not like you go from like you're you're doing stuff on East Fourth Street to you're at the Oscars. In, in between, in between, you're doing the work like day to day to day. Even through the process of doing a screen test and then getting into rehearsing and doing things, you know, you you get you you go through the process of. You know, I was as nervous about in those days. I was as nervous about working with Michael Chapman, mm-hmm. the cinematographer who shot. Raging Bull and Taxi Driver and so many of my my most you know the films that really inform my consciousness about film and as as I was about working with Richard Gere um, and but but when you but when you settle in to just figuring it all out together all that mystique sort of the the mystique you know pushes to the sidelines pretty quickly and then you're in it in a weird way it, it's not that it normalizes it but you. You know, making films, it's certainly not fancy, but it's also not, you know, it's a union crowd. It's like, it's like a lot of technicians and a lot of electricians yeah. and a lot of things. That big, thick group of people working to create something together that's very technical, it blows away very quickly the veneer of, of Hollywood. And, mm-hmm. and, and in some sense, the idea of, um, I don't know, glitz or glamour. Glamour is really the right word. It's not glamorous making films. Making films is a real, you know, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. or later process of a lot of people um, who don't, you, you know, you don't have room for for too much pretension because there's there's too much work to do. And and I love that about it. Like that's that's in some ways like you can tire pretty quickly of the of the less substantial stuff. But the day to day working with all of those people to to craft. The illusion is really, you know, my, one of my favorite things about it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I guess my point is, even when you're young and it's thrilling, 
at a certain point, the best thing about it is that the work itself is what pushes away the getting distracted by kind of like like the the the, the moment or the career. Yeah, the hype. Yeah. Yeah, the hype, the hype and the, the a sense of yourself from the outside, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think it's what's healthiest about it. It's in a, in a lot of ways. I think a lot of actors will tell you that that in a way it's like doing the work that's grounding, and then it's all the other stuff that's a little bit like like you know can mess with your head mm-hmm. tough all right let's talk about ryan johnson let's talk yeah. about miles braun because when i saw you in this film i was like oh my god he's crushing it this is a, such a great <laughs> character uh so happy to see you in this character i couldn't i actually couldn't think of anybody else playing this character other than you and it was interesting because i had ha- i had talked to ryan earlier and i'd asked him like do you th- write with people in mind you know <laughs> and he's like no not at all actually but how the cast kind of comes together so talk to me a little bit about why you wanted to play this character and kind of working with ryan and my two abiding reasons for doing this film would be like ryan johnson and ryan johnson <laughs> he's just you know, like, I, I, lo- I love Ryan's stuff. I've always loved it. I loved Brick. Mm-hmm. I met him in New York somewhere not long after Brick. And I remember where we had coffee. I mean, I'm talking like 23 yeah. years ago or something. We talked about noir films. We loved the same kind of stuff. I loved his vibe. He's the most laid-back cat, and he's just, he's just great. He asked me to do a film he made, The Brothers Bloom, mm, yeah. and I was super into it. I was doing that film, The Painted Veil, uh-huh. in China yeah. with Naomi, was, and I broke my back I, doing a stunt on a horse. Basically, I was in recovery, like in mm-hmm. Indonesia, like try, literally trying to like get myself straightened out. I couldn't do anything, you mm-hmm. know, so I, so I, I didn't end up able to do that. And I've bumped into him over the years, and you know, Looper and everything he's done, it just has everything I love about. It's precise, it's smart, it's visually terrific. You know, I hoped something would come along because he was in the category of, for me, people that, it was almost like a, a, a sight unseen yes to me. It's like if mm-hmm. Ryan rings up and says, hey, I was thinking, and be like, I- I'm in, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, just to, just to do one, just to get inside the Swiss clock of the way he does stuff. And, and I don't feel that way about um, about, you know, reams and reams of people like that so I was I was completely delighted I was I was on the other side of the world when he called me and I and I just like you know immediately was like okay when is this going to be mm-hmm. you know it was um thing and he was like well you should read it <laughs> and I was sort of like well okay but um but uh apart from all that I think there's something that he's gone at he did it a little bit in the first Knives Out, which is a smaller a smaller frame in some ways of a family and a house and things mm-hmm. like that. But it has it has these moments, you know, the family unable to remember which Latin American country Marta's from, right? right? right. That 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 make it. And I don't want to say I'm not knocking, uh, you know, I'm not knocking like the making of older things like Agatha Christie. But what Ryan does is take the conventions of the form and then he and then he makes it in the now. Mm-hmm. You know, he has his detective, but but because it was laced through with these jokes about family politics yeah. in the Trump era and stuff yeah. like that, there's something it adds something to it because you laugh because it's your mm-hmm. it, it, it reflects our moment, you know. Mm-hmm. 
And in this one, he went further with that. You know, he really, with Miles, with my character and Janelle's character yes. in particular, he stuck a fork into dynamics that we're seeing out there today. A certain class of tech Illuminati, mm -hmm. um, not to say douchebags, but um, you know, yeah. he, he 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 grabbed a hold of something that we're seeing. We're seeing a certain species emerge in American mm -hmm. life, and we're also having conversations about appropriation and things. And these are all serious subjects, but he grabbed them and nested them inside this really frothy, hilarious um, thing in a way that I loved. I, I, and, 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 and from the minute I read the script, literally till this morning, Ryan and I have, we, we, we send each other magazine covers or articles and we keep saying, see, it's every, it's it, everywhere. Yeah, it's everywhere. This, this idea of disruption and this idea of, of the way that, 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 cr that certain types of people take credit away from other mm. types of people. And I, I, lo I loved that um, without making it heady, without making it um, preachy, he, he found a great satirical way to lace the moment that we're living mm -hmm. in in through mm -hmm. this delightful and, and comedic mystery. And that's, that's hard. Like, pe people can't strike. The, not a lot of people, you have to be really pitch perfect to get to do this kind of movie, have it be entertaining, but have it be entertaining the more so because it has just a little sauce, a little zest of the zeitgeist, you know? Yeah, across it all, and like yeah. politics and social yeah. media and yeah. cancel culture, all of it. It's, it's just great. Genius. It's just terrific. It's like a souffle, you know, mm -hmm. like a chef. He's able to get all that in there and make sure that it levitates and doesn't kind of... Mm -hmm. You know, collapse. I really admire that about him. And you, you had some great scenes with Daniel Craig too. I love when the two <laughs> characters, Miles and Benoit, square off with each other. It's the thing that's funny is you can almost like like now Blanc has become sort of almost like this like iconic thing. But watching him do it is such a delight. He is so funny. Ryan and I laughed a lot at um, in this one. Maybe he. It's in the first one. But I feel like Daniel does some, he does some physical humor in this mm -hmm. that's like, it's really, it's like Jacques Tati mm -hmm. kind of, um, it's almost like mime, he, he does things. And we had one moment that I particularly got a kick out of where it's the moment where my character becomes certain that the murderer is coming for him. Right, right. And he really loses his shit and runs to Blanc mm -hmm. for, for help. And we, we, we didn't really talk about it, but we got this thing going where sounds are making me flip around and I, I grabbed him from behind around the waist. Mm -hmm. and, and Daniel did this thing. We, we got one of those things going where he, he's looking over one shoulder and I go the other way and he goes that way and I go the other way and he spins me and mm -hmm. slaps me. And I was like, it was like doing, I felt like we were doing like, like Charlie, Ch it was like Charlie Chaplin-ish, you know, it was like this, like, it was a kind of physical comedy that, that you don't, you don't really get to crack at anymore. And it was, it, he was so damn good at it and really, really, really funny. It was, it was, it was a hoot. The whole thing was just a hoot. Right. Well, we get to know him, you know, you get to know the character more and more and more as it goes on, right? Yeah. You know, so the next and third and fourth but he, or whatever. He, you know, the, the thing... Ryan's great writing everything, but I'll tell you, like, the reason that first one works so well, and he does it again in this one, is that all his, all his 
intellectual pretension and his foppery and his everything is undercut with the fact that at the end of the day, Blanc can spy the person who deserves support, you know, mm-hmm. and who and and who quietly under his very, you know, ubermensch su- superiority, he really does, like, know who the person is who he mm-hmm. should be taking care of. And he ha- you can tell he's got, like, compassion. The way he and, and Martha in the first one um, are together. But there's a moment in the first one that I, it was one of my favorite things in the whole thing. It's like the silent grandmother, yep. you know, who's watching oh, everything. God. There's a total throwaway moment in it where he, he sits down with her and no one's paying attention. And, and he just says... I'd, I'd be very happy just to sit here with you, you know? And it's so nice. It's such a nice little thing. It makes you like him. Mm-hmm. It, may, it makes you kind of go, oh, actually, underneath, he's a little bit of a softy. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And this, and in this one, without giving it away, I think, I think as you come to understand what's going on between him and Janelle's character, you get that same yeah. thing. Like, he's, 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 all, he's on the side of the right. Yeah. And that's, and that's, that's why it, it and you really for works. Him. Yeah. You want to know how yeah. it's all going to play out. So yeah. you're totally vested in it. Yeah. Uh, what did you pull to? I love, what did you say? The tech Illuminati. Okay. So you had a lot of fun characters in real life to pull from to create this yeah. Miles Braun and the, the pants, like all of it. It was <laughs> killing me. The guitar. Um, yeah. The guitar is fun. Just right in the beginning, Ryan and I were looking for something. I sometimes think that whether it's like, you know, there's something with characters where if a certain line is said the right way early in the film, you've got it. You know what this is. It's like I always say Ratso Rizzo in Midnight mm-hmm. Cowboy. Like, you know, people forget. They always say, I'm walking here, I'm walking here, right? Mm-hmm. That's an iconic moment. The first line, the first thing Ratso Rizzo says to John Boyd's character is when he sees him at the bar and he goes, I like your shirt. That's a colossal shirt. And, I, I mean, I'm done. As soon as things, like, I know, I get... There's something you get about the guy. And Ryan and I were like, okay, he's sitting on the beach. He's waiting for his friends. What is it? And there's the thing he, he kind of, you know, presents to Kate's character that this is the mm-hmm. guitar that McCartney wrote Blackbird right. on, right? Which is itself, you're like, okay, he bought this at auction or something. Right. But I said to Ryan, I was like, what if the next person he sees, he just drops that guitar, right? And we just started, we just started cracking up. And, and that was it. I was like, like, once you see that it's not just that he would buy McCartney's guitar, but, but that he would toss it. Right. It's like, now you, now you know everything you need to know about him. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and um, I think that we, we had a lot of fun because there's, there um, there's more than one of the, the, you know, there's more than one real life character out there who's dressing in certain ways and saying certain things. And um, it, to say that right now in American life, there's a rich, a rich um, uh, field of inspiration to pull from for Miles would be an understatement. He's, mm-hmm. I think, um, I think people, people will spot, um, I, I, I hope people will spot different um, <laughs> aspects of people they've read about in the mix. Certainly. I, I had, um, a, it was very joyful watching, um, <laughs> watching Miles and, and just watching yeah. it, like you said, all of it unfold. And, kind and of... Jenny Egan, Jenny Egan, like, I think might be the MVP on the whole. Mm-hmm. She's the costume designer in the film. Yeah. Like, the costumes are so funny. Um, but uh, we we had the funniest thing, too. Like, you know, without naming names, like, there'd be this and that person in the headlines 
and I would just screenshot things and send them to her and go, those pants. And she would screenshot something and send, say like, you know, what about this? What about that? And it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. Oh, that's it was, great. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. This season on the podcast, I'm asking everybody about small wins. Like we're all, you know, leaning into kind of like gratitude and what are our small wins in a difficult environment day to day and the kind of stuff that we've been living through for the last couple of years. So I know you're a surfer, but you're not, we're not surfing here right now in Toronto. But, <laughs> but what's a small win you've had lately? I've been friends with like the guys from the Chili Peppers for like 25 years. They're like Flea's a really old friend, mm-hmm. Anthony, and they're we 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 surf together and and stuff like that. But um, my kids have never been to like a rock concert, and they you know these guys have like John and 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 has been out of the band. He's come back in, and these guys are 30 years on. I saw them in a club in New Haven in like 1987, right? And that first great record they did was like 91 Mm -hmm. but you know I think bands that make one of their do some of their best work they've ever done like 30 years on are very very rare Mm -hmm. and and these guys this record they put out just knocked me out like it was on repeat for me in a way that I haven't had a record on in a long time but um but I took my and my kids know like every line of it they (laughs) love it and so I took them to see I took you know I I I told I was like I saw them in in New Haven in this bar and and I took my kids to see them in one of these stadium shows oh, they've been man. doing, and and um, they it was like they really it really had an impact on them. They really, I think it I could see it change. I could see it hit their brains in this way that you know when you get to our age, it's not that you get past it, but there's you're never going to have the magic of something at that scale. Again, seeing it break mm-hmm. over them and having it be like people I've known for a long time doing a thing that that my own kids are sort of yeah. responding to. It was very special. It was really nice. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. That's a great one. And then I think also, you know, honestly, I haven't... We, we worked. We did these films and stuff. But I haven't... I haven't been going to big events. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I've seen some things in the theater. But it was really... It was really great to be in a stadium with 70,000 people um, really getting elevated like that. You know what I mean? In a, and not feeling overly gripped about it, feeling kind of the liberation mm-hmm. of, of people singing along with something that's been a part of their lives for a long time. It was cool. It was like, I was happy to see. That communal experience. Yeah, that, that, that was, it, it was great because we can, you tell yourself that, you tell yourself that the ways we sort of retreat into connecti- virtual connectivity are okay. And everyone says, like, work from home. Oh, it turns out it works great. And a lot of things we thought we needed to go to the office to do. And that's all true. But you, but it's almost like when you go back into the collective experience and it re-energizes you, you realize, oh, no, no, we don't want to give that up. Yeah. Like, we really don't want to give that up. It's really, it's really amazing to have positive collective mm-hmm. experience together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. And on that note, I'll let you go on to okay, your other stuff. But it was great to see you. You afterward. too. Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery is streaming now on Netflix. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm Krista Smith, your host and creator of the show. Skip Intro is produced and edited by Isabel Arricchio and engineered by Dave Corwin. Special thanks to our coordinator, Alyssa Hillman. Please subscribe, rate, and review Skip Intro wherever you've been listening. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. If you enjoy the podcast, please go to NetflixQ.com for more. That's NetflixQueue.com. Hold up. 